Well, good morning. Welcome to our Palm Sunday service at Rock Prairie. We have a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, today we're going to be covering an event in Scripture known as the Triumphal Entry, when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time at the time of the Passover, just days before his crucifixion. Uh, this is a historical narrative that most of us have probably read before. It's one of the few things that appears in all four Gospels. So as we talk about it this morning, we're not going to be just looking at one passage of Scripture. We're going to be jumping around an awful lot this morning, so I hope you brought your Bibles with you. But first, in order to grasp the significance of the triumphal entry, we first need to take a look back in time and kind of immerse ourselves in the culture of Israel. Because if we're truly going to understand the significance of the triumphal entry, we first have to understand the events that have been unfolding in the three years prior, leading up to that day. So for the next several minutes, we're just going to take a look back in Scripture and let it give us the context we need in order to grasp the, the awesomeness of this day. So for approximately three years, Jesus has been traveling throughout Israel, performing all kinds of signs and wonders. He began by turning water into wine, and not just wine, but the finest wine, the Bible says. He's given sight to the blind, even at least one man who was born blind, he had never seen. He has made the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He has touched and cleansed lepers. He has said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And when that got people all upset, he said, okay, well, pick up your mat and walk then. And he did. He obeyed. He's driven out evil spirits. He's commanded the wind and the waves to hush. And they as well obeyed. He's on two different occasions taken a few fish and a few loaves of bread and fed thousands of people. And these are just a few of the things that we know about that Jesus did. In fact, in John chapter 21, John writes these words, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have enough room for the books that would be written. These Three years of Jesus' ministry had been packed full every hour of every day. Miraculous signs and wonders were happening. His power was undeniable. But Jesus did not only do miracles during that three years. He also taught with an authority that the people had never experienced before. He was independent. He showed no favoritism to anyone the religious and political leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they couldn't match his knowledge and his intellect. Many times they had tried to set him up to say something incriminating, and every single time he left them confused and at times even humiliated. We saw an example of this last week in Pastor Mike's sermon about the, the Pharisee and the sinful woman, where the Pharisee, who thought he had it all together, doubted in his mind, in his thoughts, he doubted that Jesus was a prophet until Jesus literally heard what the guy was thinking and responded in a way that gave grace to the sinful woman and had to have left that Pharisee feeling condemned and humiliated. Now, I know this is obvious, but we have to keep in mind that during this time in history, there was no mass communication. There was no internet, no TV, no radio. Word of Jesus was spreading just purely by word of mouth. So it took time. 
But after three years of, of Jesus traveling the countryside and teaching and showing all these signs and wonders, gradually expo- being exposed to the public, as he was preparing to enter Jerusalem for this last time, his popularity was as high as it could possibly get. He was at the peak of his popularity. After three years, I doubt there was anyone in all of Israel who didn't know about Jesus. They hadn't, there wasn't anyone who hadn't at least heard about him. But there's something else curious that's happening during these three years. For example, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to the town of Capernaum, and while he was there, he came across a man who was possessed by a demon. And the demon called out to him, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Does anyone remember what Jesus did next? He told the demon to be quiet. He told him to hush. In many other places in the Gospels, when Jesus would do a miraculous healing, just before he departed, he would tell the people, don't tell anyone about this. And then we have this in Matthew, verse, in Matthew chapter 16. We read this story. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking some of the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, another Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But he said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? And Simon Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then if we skip to verse 20. Then he gave the disciples strict orders that they were to tell no one he was the Christ. Now, isn't this interesting? That for three years, Jesus has been going around preaching and teaching, putting the Pharisees to shame, doing incredible miracles by the thousands. And yet, in some ways, he was shielding his identity. And scholars refer to this as the messianic secret. Now, just to be clear, what we need to understand is that this secret was not an attempt on the part of Jesus to stop people from knowing him, believing in him, or following him. And if it was, it failed miserably, right? Because he was popular. Everyone knew who he was. But he was very careful throughout the Gospels to keep his identity as the divine Son of God from being publicly professed. For some reason, the time just wasn't yet right for that to be publicly professed. And we're going to keep coming back to this concept of the Messianic secret. So tuck it in your hats while we move on. And now we want to fast forward to the final weeks leading up to the triumphal entry. Jesus, again, is at the peak of his popularity. And specifically, we want to go to John chapter 11 to the account of Lazarus. So you're welcome to turn there. We're also going to put it up on the screen. I'm sure many of you know this story as well, almost by heart. But what you may not recognize is that this event happened just weeks before Jesus would go to the cross. And it's really a turning point in his ministry. 
So in John chapter 11, Jesus receives this message from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus is critically ill and in need of healing. But Jesus stays where he is for another two days and allows Lazarus to pass away. And after two days, he tells his disciples they're going to go and wake Lazarus up. And immediately they head off to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And by the time they arrive, Lazarus has actually been dead for four days. As he approaches their home, Martha comes out to meet Jesus on the road. And that's where I'd like for us to begin reading uh, Luke, or John chapter 11, verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now this is interesting because for the first time, after essentially three years of teaching with authority that the, that the people had never experienced before, after three years of doing incredible miracles and then telling people not to reveal his true identity, he does not tell Martha to keep that a secret. She professes out loud that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and he doesn't tell her to keep it a secret. So this is a clue to us that there's something changing here in the Scripture. Not long after this interaction with Martha, Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the grave. And he walks out, still wearing his grave clothes, dressed kind of like a mummy. And immediately we read these words, beginning with verse 45 of that same chapter. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So Jesus calls a man back from the dead after four days, and of course, many of the people who witnessed this miracle believed in him, but there were some who just went to tattle. They just went to tell. And before we move on from John chapter 11, we have to see the reaction of those religious authorities to the news that Jesus had just called a man back from the grave. So pick up reading with me again, beginning in verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here again we get a sense for the popularity of Jesus. Like They're worried that every single person is going to believe in him. All men are going to believe in him. He's popular. But we also understand the Pharisees better, and we understand that they didn't get Jesus at all. They believed that his end game was to create a rebellion against Rome, 
to get as many people as possible to believe in him so that he could lead them in a rebellion against Roman rule. And what they also believed was that this was doomed to failure, that this Rome was just so powerful that it was this, over, this um, overthrow attempt just couldn't happen. And the reason that was so important was because if Jesus started a rebellion and Rome quashed it, the Romans would completely take over. They would take away the Jewish right to self-govern. They would have no autonomy left, and the Pharisees would lose their positions of power and prestige. Look again at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Pharisees were so consumed with their own power and prestige that even Jesus calling a man back from the grave after four days didn't convince them of his divinity. To them, he was just a political dissident with an axe to grind against Rome. He was using trickery on the people to convince them to join forces with him, and they thought it was going to cost them their positions of prominence. And at the end of this passage, John tells us that from that day forward, the Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus. So after the events surrounding Lazarus, John tells us that Jesus retreated to a a town in the wilderness called Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples for a few weeks until the time of the Passover. And during this time, Jesus did not walk publicly amongst the Jews. So again, let's imagine ourselves in ancient Israel. Jesus has been preaching and teaching with this incredible authority for three years. There's stories about him every single day. He speaks like no one they've ever heard. He has done incredible miracles that they can't fathom. His fame has spread. It's everywhere. Everyone knows about the things he's done and said. And suddenly, he just goes off the grid. He goes dark. And we all know the old saying, right, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's exactly what was happening during these three weeks. Because it's almost time for the Passover, the single largest and most important event on the annual Jewish calendar, where hundreds of thousands of Jews gather in Jerusalem to celebrate each and every year. And since Jesus, the most famous person in the world, has taken himself off the grid, his mysterious disappearance adds fuel to the fire of anticipation. Everyone is wondering, where do you suppose he is? What do you think he's doing? We haven't seen him for a while. Do you think... Do you think he's going to be in Jerusalem for the Passover? I'm sure that was the topic of conversation around every dinner table. And the answer is yes. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 18. We're going to read verses 31 to 34. Before Jesus sets out to head to Jerusalem, he gathers his disciples together and speaks these words to them. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. 
And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now there's nothing hard to understand about the words that Jesus just spoke, right? They were clear. He told them what was going to happen. But they, they couldn't comprehend it. He was so stinking popular. Everyone knew about him. Everyone was excited about Jesus. They couldn't fathom any of this. It just didn't make any sense. So after speaking these prophetic words, Jesus and his disciples head off to Jerusalem. And remember, it's Passover. So Jesus and the disciples are not the only travelers on the road. In fact, people from all over Israel are on the road headed to Jerusalem, making the trek there for Passover. So naturally, along the way, people begin to notice Jesus on the road, and his caravan begins to grow. He's the most famous person in all of Israel, so when people see him, they're attracted, and his caravan begins to grow. And from the city of Ephraim, Jesus heads to the town of Jericho which had major roads coming in from all different directions. And so Jericho was this major center of commerce and trade because of these roads, but it was also a major pass-through city for people from all over Israel on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was a busy city. And as Jesus enters the city, the streets are literally lined with people. They've already heard he's coming. They're lined up. Remember the song when we were kids, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and he climbed up in the sycamore tree to see Jesus. This is the event. It happened right here. Jesus is on his way to Passover. He travels through Jericho. Zacchaeus is there. There's so many people he can't see. He climbs up in a tree so he can see Jesus. That's not just a cute little song we sang. This really happened. From Jericho... Six days before the Passover, Jesus goes to Bethany to once again stay at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And you can read about this in John chapter 12, but I'm just going to highlight what we need to see. While they were in Bethany, Martha takes up, makes up one of her famous suppers for Jesus and the disciples. And while they're gathered there, verse 9 says that a large crowd of Jews then learned that Jesus was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but also so that they might see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So again, all this background, the reason we're walking through this is to just soak in the popularity of Jesus, to understand what was going on at the time. Everywhere he went, he attracted huge crowds of people. Everywhere he went, people were drawn to him. And I have no doubt that as this party broke up, some of the people left and went straight to Jerusalem to tell everyone they knew that Jesus was on his way. He's on his way to the Passover. So there is excitement in the air. The most famous person in all the world, it's now been confirmed, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's coming to the Passover, and the people can't wait. There is an excitement in the air. They are full of anticipation. And so with that, let's begin reading about the triumphal entry. And as I said earlier, this is recorded in all four Gospels, so we're going to take parts from different places. But for, for now, we're going to begin with Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. 
Matthew 21, beginning with verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Now this is a a strange little side story, don't you think? How they acquired the donkey that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on. It's one of those things that you kind of scratch your head and go, why, why is this so important that it became a part of Scripture? All four authors of the Gospels include this detail, that Jesus sent two disciples to go retrieve the donkey and the colt. In Mark and Luke, we learn that Jesus actually rode on the colt, not the, don- not the adult donkey. He actually rode on the colt because no one had ever ridden on it before. And in the other Gospels, we learned that when they went to get the donkey, they were indeed asked, what are you doing? And when they said the Lord has need of it, the owners immediately let them take it. So what's the point of this side plot? And I think there's a couple of different things we can see. And again, I think the first thing is the popularity of Jesus. We see how famous he was. I suppose he could have known the owner of the donkey. He could have made arrangements ahead of time. But if that were the case, I would have expected that he would have said to the disciples, I've got this buddy Fred, and he lives on Main Street, and he's got this donkey, and he's going to have it ready for you. Go get it, right? But he didn't do that. He told them, go get it, and it's going to be tied in this place. And if they ask you, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. And that's what they did, and they got it. I think the owners probably knew who Jesus was, And when they heard that the Lord has need of it, they were eager to give it up for his service. He was that popular. The second reason this is important is because of the narrative of the Old Testament prophecy. Sorry, the Old Testament prophecy from the book of Zechariah that Jesus would come to Israel mounted on a colt on the foal of a donkey. We see that in Matthew uh, verse 5 of Matthew 21, he says that this whole triumphal, eventry, triumphal entry event happened the way it did to fulfill the prophecy, right? But when you stop to think about the title of this narrative, the triumphal entry, if you were responsible for being the one to set the scene, would you have the king of the universe riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? How would you set the scene? I would have picked like a a white stallion, right? I would have had Jesus riding in on a white stallion. But Jesus rides a donkey. And when I've read this narrative my whole life, I've always just made an assumption 
that Jesus riding a donkey was just to highlight his humility. Just like he was born in a manger in the most humble of circumstances, right? And that I, I just assumed this was reinforcing that point. That he's coming in, the triumphal entry on a donkey, highlighting his humility. But what I didn't know until just the last couple of weeks as I've been studying this is that in the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders, even kings, rode horses when they were going to war. But they rode donkeys if they came in peace. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33 mentions that even Solomon rode a donkey on the day of his coronation as the king of Israel. So knowing this, that kings rode donkeys if they came in peace... Let's think about why Jesus came to earth. He came to make a way for men to have peace with God, right? John 3.17 says that God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came so that men who were dead in their trespasses, enemies of God and children of wrath, could be reconciled to God and have peace with him. And that alone makes this picture of Jesus riding in on a donkey a really powerful picture. But we need to take it a step further. It's not just that the donkey signified Jesus was coming in peace, but in addition, it's the fact that he was the king who was coming in peace. He was identifying with Solomon's coronation. Jesus riding in on the colt of the donkey was like another nail in that messianic secret, in the coffin of the messianic secret. To us, it may seem really subtle, but to the Jews who were gathered there that day, it would have been anything but. They would have understand, understood that he was riding into town on a donkey, sending the message that he was their king in the lineage of David and Solomon. And so now let's look at the response of the people This time in the book of Luke, chapter 19, beginning with verse 35. Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey sending the message that he's their king. Not only did it fulfill the prophecy, but there is historical imagery of Solomon doing the same thing. And thousands and thousands of Jews who have gathered from all over the city to come out and see Jesus ride in. And they were throwing palm branches in their coats on the road in front of Jesus. And they were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Both Mark and Matthew record the people shouted, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
John records the same kinds of things. There's no question about it. All of the crowd was worshiping Jesus. They were confirming their understanding that he was the promised Messiah, the one who was the son of David, who was coming from the Lord to bring peace and deliverance and sit on the throne of David forever. They knew who Jesus was, and they were worshiping him, and Jesus was allowing them to do it. This was his coronation. But look what happens in verse 39. The Pharisees are hearing the people refer to Jesus as deity. They're offended, and they say to Jesus, probably in raised voices, Teacher, rebuke your disciples! And his response, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. This is the final nail in the coffin of that messianic secret. Jesus is not holding anything back, not even from the Pharisees. He doesn't care if it makes them angry. His time has come. Everything is out in the open. No longer will he tell people to be silent about his identity. And even if he did and they obeyed, inanimate objects would begin to worship him out loud. This is a pivotal moment in all of history. He must be acknowledged. The people were happy to oblige. They've heard his teaching. They've seen the miracles. They will not be silent any longer because they are coronating their king. But that desire for him to be their king doesn't last very long at all. Look at the book of John, chapter 19. We're going to begin reading with verse 14. The setting here is five days later. The triumphal entry was on a Sunday, and the events we're going to read about happened just five days later on a Friday. In this passage, Jesus is on trial with Pilate presiding, and we read these words. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Just as Jesus had prophesied to his disciples before they headed for Jerusalem, he has now been handed over to the Gentiles. He's being mocked. His own people are calling for his death. What in the world happened, right? How do we go from this day of celebration, this triumphal entry, to just five days later having many of the same people cry out, crucify him? And to understand that, I think we have to take a minute to remember why they were in Jerusalem in the first place. It was the Passover, right? And what does the Passover celebrate? It celebrates the, the Jews' deliverance from Egypt, right? From their delivery from bondage and enslavement in Egypt. And that's at the forefront of their minds, that, that our God is a delivering God. That God has delivered us from Egypt in the past. We celebrate that. We're gathered here in this city to celebrate that. And here now, at the very time we're gathered here to celebrate our delivering God, comes a new deliverer. 
to deliver us from Rome, from the bondage of this present era. Remember we talked about the Pharisees, that they believed Jesus' goal was to stir up the people into rebellion against Rome. And they believed that if he did that, Rome would crush Israel and they would lose their positions of prominence. And that's why they wanted to kill him. Well, the people believed some of the same things about Jesus' goal. They didn't have the same concerns about losing, losing their positions of prominence, but they did believe, just like the Pharisees, that Jesus, their king, was coming to lead them in rising up against Roman oppression and that he would rule them from an earthly throne. They knew he was their king, but they didn't yet understand the nature of his kingdom. They were in a frenzy, thinking that Jesus was the one sent by God to be their savior, but they were expecting this savior to be a political and military savior. And here's where things begin to take a turn. One of the first things Jesus did after entering the city of Jerusalem was to go to the temple and turn over the tables of the money changers and those who were selling sacrificial animals and drive them all out. Instead of confronting Rome, he came and, and, and confronted their corrupt system of worship. And in doing that, he began to send a message to everyone that he wasn't really that concerned with Rome. He hadn't come to confront the big, bad Roman Empire. He had come to confront our biggest enemy, sin. He hadn't come to bring peace between earthly kingdoms. He had come to bring a way to make peace between God and man. And over the subsequent days, as the people began to recognize that his concern was not to free them from Rome, they became discouraged and they turned on him. The problem for the Jews was that they knew who Jesus was. They had seen his power. They had heard his words. They had been convinced of his identity. They confessed it with their own mouths that he was the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew who he was. They knew he was the promised Messiah. They knew he was of God. But they didn't want the kingdom on his terms. All they wanted was whatever he could give them in this world and this life. Their lives under Roman rule were hard. They wanted relief from their suffering. They wanted revenge on Rome. And because of that, they were blinded to their greatest need. They had no interest in a spiritual kingdom. They didn't care to be confronted about their sin. And when it became evident that those were the things Jesus was concerned about, they cursed him. And that really is the message for all of us in this narrative we call the triumphal entry. Because the people in the world today are no different. Through all of history, since these events have occurred, there have been people who have read about Jesus. They've read about the miracles he's done. They've read about the words that he said. And they've become convinced that he's the king, that he is God in the flesh. But they don't want Jesus on his terms. They want a Jesus of their own invention. They want Jesus who says, I've got all this power and I'm going to use it to solve all your problems. I'm going to deliver you from your enemies. I'm going to make life in this world wonderful for you. 
And they want a Jesus who says, you don't ever need to change a thing. You are perfect exactly the way you are. But that's not the real Jesus. All of us probably know people who it seems are just so close to salvation. They're open to Jesus, the Jesus of their own definition, right? Who gives them health, wealth, happiness, and loving acceptance of their sin. But as soon as he confronts the sinfulness of their hearts and and seeks to turn their heart toward God, they turn away from him. That's not who they want in charge of their lives. And the scary thing is, this could even be describing some of us gathered here today. It could be that, that some of us want a Jesus of our own invention who will solve all of our problems and lovingly accept our sin. We only want Jesus for the comfort he can give us in this life. And if that's you, can I just lovingly say that Jesus is about something so much bigger and so much grander than anything in this world could ever provide for us. Jesus is about meeting our greatest need, about rescuing us from our sin, transforming us into his image, and enlisting us into the service of his Father, building his eternal kingdom. The real Jesus of the Bible is not primarily concerned with our circumstances on earth. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he doesn't answer any of our prayers related to our circumstances on earth. He does that often for all of us. It's just that the things here on earth, the things that are seen, are temporary. The things that Jesus is concerned about are eternal. Even the Roman Empire, as cruel as they could be, It's long gone, right? It's long gone. None of us live under the Roman rule. As powerful and as mighty as that that kingdom might have seemed, it was only temporary. And what Jesus had to offer was an eternal kingdom, an eternal family, something vastly more valuable. But the people who cheered him on the day of that triumphal entry valued the temporary over the eternal. And that really is the question for us even still today. Are we willing to place value in the eternal things over the temporal things? Are we, really to, are, we, are we ready to see Jesus and receive him for who he truly is? The king of all eternity and the savior of our souls. Are we willing to, to die to ourselves and allow Jesus to live through us? Counting all things as loss in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. I truly hope that for every one of us gathered here today, the answer to that question is yes. Because again, what Jesus has to offer is so much bigger and so much grander than anything this life could ever give us. He's offering us the chance to be at peace with the God of all creation and to enter into his family, into his service. But we have to receive the gift on his terms. Just like the people we read about today, there are times when in our sinful flesh, Jesus may not be the king we want. But the truth is really simple. He's the king we need. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, you are incredible. This plan of yours to send your son to take our sin upon himself, to take it to the cross, to suffer and die for the debt that we owe so that we can then have peace with you and be restored to a place of right standing and enter your service. Lord, this is a plan that none of us would have ever dreamed up. It's inconceivable. So I humbly pray that today as we examine the words of these firsthand witnesses who, who saw your son, who walked with him, who lived with him, who saw his death, who saw his resurrection, and wrote down what they saw so that they could testify to us. Lord, as we read these things, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move within us, convince us of what's true, that you are the king of heaven and earth, you're the king of all eternity, and that you love us. And I pray that there would be no one who leaves here today without your Holy Spirit convincing them to surrender their life to Jesus. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.